Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. As one official described it to me, you know, sanctions are kind of a game of, of cat and mouse. Um, and one country targets another country, and the targeted country is going to respond. The ruble absolutely in free fall. That's exactly what we're seeing here. They propped up the ruble. I'm Annie Reese, and this is Politico Dispatch. After losing more than half its value against the dollar, the Russian ruble is almost back to its pre-war levels. And when I first saw that, I thought, huh, didn't the United States and Europe level these historic economic sanctions to squeeze the Russian economy? So I called up the one person who I knew could explain it. Okay, I'm ready when you are. Kate Davidson. And I write the Morning Money newsletter, and I'm also an economics reporter at Politico. I wanted to know... Is the fact that the ruble has bounced back a sign that sanctions aren't working, or is it more complicated? It's definitely more complicated, and I think most people would say, no, that's not what this means. Uh, It's noteworthy, but there are a few things happening here. Probably the biggest factor is that the Russian central bank has taken really dramatic extreme steps to prop up the ruble. And that's that's their job, essentially. I mean, that's what you would expect them to do. Um, These economic policymakers, they've instituted um, capital controls and other restrictions to basically prevent people from getting rid of their rubles. And you can see it's not just the effect of the sanctions is not only reflected in what's happening with the currency. You can see that people are trying to leave Russia. They're trying to pull out their money. This is part of the reason Mm -hmm. that they've put these limits in. So Russians can only withdraw a certain amount of dollars from banks on any given day. Um, And there are restrictions on brokerages and there are restrictions on, you know, sales of securities. All of these efforts that are meant to kind of limit people's ability, as I said, to get rid of the ruble and Treasury officials and, and others, too, yeah. who follow the market analysts say that that's, that's basically helping to keep the ruble afloat, to keep it inflated. But there are other things happening, too. They're mm. still getting a lot of revenue from energy, from oil and gas sales. So that's helping. Um, and they're also not really, there's not a lot of money going out because they can't really buy things right now from the rest of the world because of these sanctions. There's a lot of limits on what they can spend their money on. So it's a, it's, it's a confluence of factors for sure. And so what does a country's currency tell you about the state of its economy? Oh, that's a good question. When a country's currency is strong, that's usually a reflection of a healthy economy. So what we've seen with the ruble after its deep plunge in a normal world, in a a normally functioning uh, market – if we saw the ruble, you know, strengthening again, that might suggest that, uh, you know, would be seen, I think, as a reflection of, um, you know, an improving economic outlook. But what's happening in Russia right now is the market is actually very, very thin. There's very few people actually operating in it. And that's why the price has come back so much. It's very tightly controlled. It's really tightly managed. I saw another newspaper refer to the ruble as being in a central bank induced coma, which I I think is um, is a handy way of thinking about what's happening right now. It's come back. It's stabilized. You'd say maybe it's heavily medicated, <laughs> heavily sedated, at least sedated. Right, right. 
In Russia, after the invasion of Crimea in 2014, they did a lot of things to try to basically prepare themselves for something like this in the future. What they weren't expecting and what the U.S. and its allies did, uh, which was really made a huge difference, was freezing the central bank's ability to access its foreign reserves. And that would have been a way that they could kind of blunt some of the impact of the sanctions. Um, it was a way It's a way for them basically, if their access to dollars was cut off, which we saw, that would have been a way for them to keep financing their operations. Um, so that move was was really huge. And you saw, as, as you said at the outset, this almost immediate crash in the ruble in the days following that. So, so these were, uh, these were a very big deal. And, um, you know, I don't think that anyone in the central bank of Russia right now feels good about this, is happy about the measures that they're having to take, um, to deal with this. I think more broadly, this, I think people who follow this would say it's really a short term solution. But for now, it's kind of, it's, it's keeping things going for now. It's, it's allowing them to sort of keep going. Yeah. And as you said, sanctions often need to change over time because the target of the sanctions always adjusts to them in some way. And the Biden administration and your story, you know, there are officials who say that they can still ratchet up pressure. So what are their other options? they're kind of giving momentum to people who are saying, hey, we need to do a lot more. And um, and those are even, you know, former Obama administration officials who worked on sanctions uh, in 2014 against Russia. Mm-hmm. Even some of them are saying that um, there are further steps you can take. So, you know, they've imposed sanctions, for example, on banks, but they ha- there's only one bank in Russia that ha- has faced full blocking sanctions, they're referred to, which is basically the toughest that you can go. Only one of them mm-hmm. is under that. We could escalate there. Uh, we could cut more Russian banks off of the SWIFT system, which is an international payment system. Banks use it to communicate. It's really in- essential to make international transfers of money. And there are only, about, I think it's seven banks that have been cut off from that. So they could do a lot more. Mm-hmm. They announced some new measures on Thursday that would target new sectors of Russia's economy, basically in an effort to try to disrupt supply chains so that they can't get the things they need to keep the war the war going. That's one area where they're clearly doing more, but I think the feeling is they could go even deeper, go after people, major players in those sectors. Um, yeah, there's, there's a number of, of different avenues there. Biden has talked before about there being certain red lines that he doesn't want to cross for fear that they'd rebound back on the American economy. But how far would sanctions have to go for the U.S. to feel pain? Well, I think that it's definitely possible that we will feel some quote unquote pain. I mean, it, it depends, you know, it's a, it's relative, right? I think that clearly, right. if you think about it, the countries that are literally physically closer to Russia, I think are more exposed. So, you know, Europe, which relies on on Russia for natural gas and energy, I mean, they, I think the stakes are, are much higher for them, which is why we saw this initial coordinated big um, package of sanctions. But things have stalled out a little bit. And um, I think a, a big part of that is because Europe it's a very difficult decision for them to kind of go ahead with, um, you know, further sanctions on the energy sector because that would be a big cost. So again, back mm-hmm. to the U.S. Though I think we clearly have seen, you know, higher energy prices showing up at the pump. We're already dealing with inflation, so there was already some of that underlying this, which makes it more complicated. Um, mm-hmm. But on Thursday again, you saw the president talking about releasing more oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to try to kind of tamp down gas prices. Um, you know 
clearly it's it's having an effect here. And the way that that would kind of ripple through the economy, what usually tends to happen when you have an energy price shock is that consumers just have less money. They're spending more on gas. They have less to spend on other things. Then again, you know, with this kind of situation, uh, there a shock could could ripple across the globe in ways that it's it's hard to anticipate right now. So I think people are anxious for sure. So going back to what you said about the additional sanctions that Treasury announced Thursday and the other tools that we kind of have in our toolkit, I think it's still been kind of overwhelming watching what feels like another curtain fall. The sanctions have been designed to target oligarchs and people at the top of Russian power, but we know they're being felt by everyone. I mean, these sanctions are really squeezing the Russian economy and are certainly being felt by everyday Russians. So it just feels like we're increasing pressure in this extremely long-term way that's going to really shape or change the world economy for a very long time. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's true that the sanctions we've seen have had a very immediate impact. But I think that people in the government, people at the Treasury, or at least maybe they won't say it this clearly, but people who have been in these positions before and are perhaps now on the outside will say clearly that sanctions are not going to immediately, you know, stop tanks on the battlefield. Um, they, they, they work over time and they're designed to work over time. Some of these steps as uh, clearly did work immediately, have had an immediate effect and, um, and are limiting Russia's ability to finance the war. It's cut them off immediately from the Western financial system. But other pieces are designed to really weigh on the Russian economy over time and, um, you know, and limit uh, I think their design, their aim is to sort of limit Putin's ability to to build up the Russian e- economy, to industrialize further and to be able to be a source of, you know, a source of strength or to be a powerful country. And that takes time. But stepping back from that, you know, there are concerns. There are there are people out there who are saying, look, may- maybe this is a, you know, maybe this is the morally right thing to do right now in the situation. But it's important to acknowledge that, you know, we are weaponizing, you know, using these economic weapons, weaponizing macroeconomic mm-hmm. policy. And at some point, there's a discussion to have about whether that's really a good thing, because, right, there, it's undeniably going to hurt a lot of ordinary Russians, even though that's definitely not the aim. Um, the aim is, you know, they're really trying to target the sanctions at Putin and, and at these Russian oligarchs as wealthy, you know, these wealthy elites. But, um, mm-hmm. but right, it's, it's, they do have a broad impact. And, um, you know, it, it is going to is going to be really bad for the Russian economy. So it's, it's a, it's a messy business. It is a messy business. So what are you looking out for in the coming days and weeks on this issue? Continuing to monitor the discussions around energy, you know, an energy embargo in Europe. You know, the, U- the U.S., to be clear, has come out and banned Russian oil imports. That was a few weeks ago, but we import so very little. So it, it's really just a drop in the bucket. The the bigger push, I think, by the Ukrainians um, and by others, the bigger push is really for Europe to, um, to do that and to kind of st- start at least make commitments to, um, you know, to, to lower its usage of, of Rus- Russian gas. The idea is just they want to, they see this ener- these energy revenues as a, it's a source of revenue for, for Russia and it's, it's helping them to be able to survive and to keep financing the war. So that's sort of an obvious place where people who support more sanctions, they, they think that that's an area that 
where they could really be toughened up. So that's one place. But, um, you know, Treasury has said that they'll continue to um, to target these supply chains. So just watching to see if they go after other sectors of the Russian economy that are broader, that are more like consumer sectors. Right now, they've really focused on sectors that affect defense, like aerospace and marine and technology and looking at tech companies like they sanctioned one of the biggest uh, chip manufacturers in Russia today, for example. So I think it will be interesting to see how quickly or to what extent they go beyond that, too, is also important. Kate Davidson, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks so much, Annie. Also in the news, a group of LGBTQ advocates sued Florida and the DeSantis administration in federal court on Thursday over recently passed parental rights legislation branded the Don't Say Gay Bill by opponents. The lawsuit is the first legal challenge for the high-profile measure that Republican Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law on Monday. And key senators are nearing a deal on a roughly $10 billion package of coronavirus relief, setting Congress on a path to deliver funding Democrats had hoped to pass weeks ago. The relief package does leave out global aid, which has frustrated some Democrats and spells possible trouble for the passage of the $10 billion package in the House. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. Dispatch's senior editor is Raghu Manavalan, and our executive producer is Jenny Almond. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> 